0: Welcome to The Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. God forbid that we're on a plane and we don't crash, the planes going down and there's nothing you can do. This was just like that. Because there wasn't, it wasn't like there was a runway that she was going to be able to slow down the vehicle. She had to hit something somewhere, somehow. Please
1: rise. Court is now in session. All right, this is the Great Trials Podcast, and this is your host, Steve Lowry, along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, it sounds like you've got some family in town.
2: <laughs> How did you know? Did I tell you that, or did you just <laughs> see me being distracted?
1: I could see you being distracted, and you said your brother had some uh, some uh, suggestions for the show.
2: I do. I brought uh, there my free labor um, to do help me do stuff around the house um, hang up TVs, that kind of stuff. So, and also to see them. I mean, I like yeah. them.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, of course to see them, but the free labor doesn't hurt either.
2: Right. But I've kicked them out outside, um, for the podcast.
1: <laughs> you didn't, you didn't want the audience there, uh, watching you as you, as you uh, do the show.
2: Right. I want them to listen. I want them to, to, uh, download rate, review, subscribe.
1: Yes, Absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, as I'm losing my voice. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I can't forget to tell people to, uh, if you can, yeah. if you enjoy the show, go on and uh, and rate us and uh, and review us and and uh, subscribe to us. Yep. Um, well, let's go ahead and let's inter- introduce our two uh, great guests from Los Angeles, two fantastic attorneys. Uh, and uh, I'm going to do my best. I, we 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 got a primer on on how to say the names, but I want to make sure I don't screw them up. But uh, I, I'm going to introduce Garo uh, Martirosian and Armin Ak- akarakian perfect look at that so and uh, and they are uh, lawyers at, at Martirosian and associates in los angeles california and you can look them up at garo law.com that's g a r o law.com welcome guys spoiler
0: alert soon to be martarosian akarakian
1: well you know and I, that was another thing I, I meant to ask because i can see on our on our zoom camera that you've got uh, Martirosian and akarakian uh, Listed there. So I was wondering if there is a firm name change coming soon. It is. It is. Well, great. Well,
0: we haven't yet uh you know announced it, but uh you're the first to know.
1: Yeah, well oh, it, and, that's and now our whole audience knows it's it's out there in the public now.
2: Perfect. <laughs> Congratulations. is yeah, news
1: to me, no, I'm just kidding.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> 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 right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations guys and um so we've got a really uh, really fascinating case to talk about here. This is uh from the uh I'll just say from the Toyota sudden acceleration uh litigation and this was the first uh, state bellwether case that was tried uh in the uh I know in California it's called the JCCP. Uh, and that's sort of the uh, equivalent of the uh, of the, what's in federal court of a multi district litigation where they consolidate uh, litigation involving uh, the same uh, issue against the same defendants, and um, and so we'll talk about that. But let me first uh, let me first introduce uh, you two and talk a little bit about your background so everybody knows uh, everybody knows uh, a little bit about you. So, Garo, I'll start with you. Uh, you started practicing in 1981, have had uh, multiple uh, multi-million dollar recoveries, especially a, a number against, um, uh, I would say, against uh, police departments and sheriff's departments uh, for um, uh, police negligence or, or um, brutality cases, we would call them, a number of product liability uh, cases like, like this one here and had just some tremendous results. Uh, in 2001, you were named by the, uh, uh Consumer Attorneys Association of Los Angeles as trial lawyer of the year. And, uh, in 2010, where the, uh, was the president of the uh, Consumer Attorneys Association of Los Angeles. And, um, as we were talking about a little bit before Garo, you, uh, before you became a lawyer. And I think when you were in high school, you, uh, uh, worked as a mechanic, and uh, and that sort of gave you your first uh, intro to uh, uh, vehicles and and, uh, and and defects and things like we're going to talk about in this case.
0: Sure, yeah. My dad had a uh, garage, uh, and we still own the garage about uh, five miles from here. And before that, he had a gas station about four miles from here. And so I was a gas jockey for many years. And then when we got the garage, I was a helper there. Wrote most of the estimates for body shop work and and work for, on vehicles. I did anything from, you know, changing alternators to water pumps to, you know, tearing apart engines, putting them back together. Just took one apart. Uh, Three months ago, took uh, an engine out of a 67 Corvette uh, because we had a uh, thrust bearing that had spun and I wanted to keep the original engine. And Right now it's in Chicago getting a special uh, bearing uh, put in. So, yeah, and I also uh, was a... um, a smog detector. Right, I uh, right. had a license as a, uh, so I, I could do uh, certificates on cars. But the year that I got trial lawyer of the year, because it's all about numbers, was right. year 2000, two zero zero. Oh, Okay, Ten years later is when okay. I was the uh, president of the organization. But thanks for, uh, for mentioning those.
1: I should also mention that the Daily Journal has also named you as one of the top 100 uh, lawyers in California as well. That's right. Uh, and, and your uh, uh, partner, Armin uh, Akarakian, uh, is also a fantastic lawyer. Uh, and one thing I, I guess I should say is you two also tried a case together. I think the name of the case was Panu versus Land Rover uh, and, and got a $25 million recovery in that case, but also uh, set some precedent for uh, other product liability cases in, in the state of California. And for that case... Uh, Armin, I believe you were nominated for Trial Attorney of the Year by the uh, Consumer Attorneys Association of California. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I had the privilege of uh, having that nomination. Yeah. And, uh, and you've also been named as one of the uh, top 20 uh, lawyers under 40 by the Armenian Bar Association. Uh, and, uh, and, and it sounds like if I, if I did my math right when I was reading your bio, it sounds like you've been working with Garo since before you were a lawyer. Long before. Yes. <laughs> since, since 1999.
0: Um, I became a lawyer in 2006. Uh, but I've known Garlo since I was a little kid
1: because he's my uncle. So oh, that's
0: you know. great. <laughs> <Epitism> lives.
1: <laughs> well, well, welcome to the show, guys. Um, uh, it's really good to have you on. And, and uh, I think, you know, this case that we'll be uh, talking about is a, is a really interesting case. And um, you know, these sudden acceleration cases, uh, we actually handled a couple of these, I mean, years ago when this was all uh, happening. I mean, they're, they, uh, they're difficult cases. I mean, they uh, Toyota defended them uh, vigorously.
0: Yes. Yeah. So they, uh, uh, we, we, we ended up, you know, j- just in the amount of time that was put into this, 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 our case alone on the bellwether, I mean, we spent just in trial three months straight doing nothing but this case. I mean, and I mean, nothing but this case. It really was nothing but this case.
2: Yeah, well, and that's another reason I'm excited to talk about this case is is I've never been involved in a bellwether or a bellwether type case, and it seems like every case for us is high stakes. We want to get justice for our clients, but it seems like there's a lot of pressure for you basically to have to... Uh, break the ground and, and be the first, you know, the first one out of the gate. Um, so I'm I'm really excited to talk about this case. I don't think, I know we've talked about cases involved in MDLs before, Steve, but I right. don't know if we've ever talked about a Bellwether case before. But uh,
1: well, on
0: top of that, we were being videotaped and broadcast daily on CBN. So yeah. the pressure wasn't just, uh, you know, people are going to look at the result, but it was more about, well, every day we've got many eyes watching uh, yeah. People thinking I could have done better than that. You know, <laughs> why <What> do you <laughs> ask that question? Why did you do that stupid thing? Yeah, oh, yeah we- back in my, our minds. Although you forget about it after the first couple of weeks.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, in fact, yvonne could talk about that. She just tried a case in December where uh, they had CVN was uh, was uh, videoing it, and and uh, I know that. Uh, uh, a couple of times, Yvonne, you would stand up like right in front of the camera to argue. Your right, point to I car. had no idea.
2: I was like right in front of the camera every time we would stand when when the jury would come in and out, and um, I got a lot of com. I got a lot of constructive criticism of my hair um, and how tired I looked. Um, but.
1: That's how trial goes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, uh, well, the case that we're talking about is, uh, it is uh, Uno versus Toyota, uh, all of the Toyota defendants. So the Toyota Motor Company, the uh, Toyota Motor Sales of North America, uh, and a uh, defendant driver uh, named Olga Bello. Uh, your client was named uh, Noriko Uno, and um, you and she had uh, uh, been killed in this collision. And you represented her husband and son, uh, Peter Uno and Jeffrey Uno. And um, and what happened in this case was that on um, August 28, 2009, uh, at around four o'clock in the afternoon, I think Noriko was driving to do some errands. Uh, on 23rd, or no, So she, I think she was on Euclid Avenue, uh, which is also State Highway 83, uh, driving somewhere around uh, 30 to 45 miles an hour. And Miss Bellow uh, ran a stop sign at approximately somewhere between 4 and 10 miles an hour, hit her side and caused her to basically spin almost 180 degrees on the road. And then what happened was that uh, essentially... Uh, Miss Uno's Toyota Camry uh, accelerated and took off driving south in the northbound lane, so driving the wrong way uh, for about half of a mile. Um, I I saw some reference in some of the argument that it was about 13 seconds, uh, getting up to speeds of somewhere around 80 to 90 miles an hour. Um, And then uh, she eventually lost control, hit a pole, and then uh, hit some trees, some pepper trees. And uh, uh, um, was tragically killed in, in the collision. And so the case had to do with the, with the defect that uh, Toyota, you know, that was all over the news at the time, which was the unintended acceleration. And if I saw correctly, um, uh, Garo and Armin, your theory was essentially that her uh, foot had gotten entrapped under the brake pedal. And the heel of her sandal, I think, was was pressing down the accelerator and um, and that she was unable to get that free. And and so part of your argument or or theory of defect was that uh, they should have had a brake override system or brake override safety system uh, that they had had on some of their vehicles since 2001. This was a 2006. Uh, Also, I saw a couple of other theories of they should have had a hinged pedal so that she could have gotten her her uh foot free easier. Um and then that they should have done uh should have done an adequate warning uh to let her know what, what to do if there should be an unintended uh acceleration. Um and the verdict the, the verdict in the case was a, a ten million dollar verdict. Um the verdict was against Miss Bellow for causing the collision. Uh, Toyota actually uh uh got a defense verdict in the in the case. Is that right?
0: Yeah, just by the error <laughs> of the chinny chin chin, chin that, uh, the jury was out uh you know we kept talking to the defense attorney they're like oh what do you think they're thinking we're going we don't know what they're thinking if you don't tell us and they were out quite a while and then later we learned uh that it was basically a compromised verdict they were going to give us the money it was just a question of who we we're going to get it from and uh, it was real close where there there was one juror that sort of hung it up a bit and he got, well you know what Uh um, let's just be done here and let's let Toyota off. I mean, Toyota did a massive job of uh, defending the case. They uh, certainly threw everything they had at it. Uh, you know, we were very lucky to have a very good judge and a good jury and uh, get to put somebody like uh, the CEO of the American Toyota, uh, Lance, on the stand. And, you know, we understood our, our duties here. It wasn't just about this case. We right. are a well bellwether case. So we've got to do what we can, first for our case, but let's not forget why we're doing this. We're doing it for hundreds of other cases, if not thousands. And so we sort of took on that burden uh, willingly and with great pleasure because we wanted to get this thing done. We wanted to get out there, get the case tried. And there were a few other cases that were not as well-situated as ours,
1: Mm -hmm. and we knew
0: we had a backstop in ours. We knew that if things didn't go uh, well against Toyota, we have Bello. Now the jury didn't know, but we knew that Bello had a decent sized insurance policy. We had made a demand for that policy. The defense lawyers in that case thought our demand was too high, even though it was a policy with demand. And that was the best thing that could have happened to us. Mm-hmm. Now we have two defendants with deep pockets that our clients were gonna get well served no matter what happened. Okay. And the chances were mm-hmm. slim to none. That we were going to get defense against both. Right. So, some could say uh, that made it easy. Yeah, maybe. But this was still a knockdown, uh, drag out fight to the end. Uh, both of them argued they did nothing wrong. It was all about this woman that had a host of medical issues mm-hmm. from being a survivor of double mastectomy to having all sorts of internal organs that were failing. And she was also a diabetic. And so she had issues with diabetes. And as we know, you could uh, pass out if your insulin level level drops down. And uh, that was their theory, that this was not about anything other than misapplication of the pedal. She thought she was pressing the brake, but she was pressing the accelerator. And uh, so it's all her fault. And she's dead. She can't talk about it. As you might already know we haven't talked about it yet the best evidence we had other than myriad of witnesses that we'll go over in a bit I guess when we have time because we prepared a three-dimensional model we yeah. had boatload of boatloads of three dimensional models in this case everything from the entire half mile done three dimensionally all to scale uh, a break override system where the jury could see what happens and we called it the boss it was the boss over the accelerator. The feds wanted to call it brake override system. They hated the word boss, because we'd say, let the brake be the boss over the accelerator. Right. Why not? What's what's wrong with that? Well, they came up with a thousand reasons why that's not so smart, but they were wrong. Um, unfortunately, in our case, it didn't matter a whole lot because like I said, the jury was had a number in mind and they were gonna give it. And they were sort of hung up as Toyota. And remember, at this point, we also had Toyota in on punitives, right. which would have made it really sweet. Uh, and that was a big deal to advance the case that far, defeat all their motions to prevent us from taking the deposition or the, putting their CEO on the stand, prevailing on all that. And now we, we got to try the case for three months. You know, we had our own offices uh, leased in the building, trial in the courthouse. And so we slept there many nights and uh, we worked hard and uh, we got a fairly decent result for the family. We were disappointed that we didn't nail Toyota, but we got enough on Toyota that the next guy that tried a case, the ones after them, used what we had uncovered to do the right thing and get some justice for uh, victims of these uh, these, uh, SUAs.
1: Yeah, one thing that I should have mentioned in the in the facts and, and, and some of the evidence that you had showing that um, that, you, you know, that this that her foot wasn't trapped was a, a couple of things. One is that when they found her, that she had pulled the emergency handbrake, that that was Great. that was up. Um, and then I think her foot was found under the brake. And, and the and I, part of the argument was the way that it had been broken and injured showed that she, her foot had to have been under the brake. Uh, I mean, of course the defense, uh, contested that. Um, but then I think you also had some pretty good eyewitness testimony, uh, people who saw the brake lights come on and off, like she was trying to use the brake and, um, and saw her conscious. And I think they described her as horrified, uh, in trying to control the vehicle as it's speeding down the roadway. So you had pretty compelling evidence of, uh, uh you know, from, uh, eyewitnesses and in um, uh, evidence found at the scene.
0: Right, right. So our case wasn't your classic uh, electronics case, uh, as far as SUAs are concerned, uh, Southern Acceleration. Ours was more of a break-over system, the lack of. And so we had to um, position our case in that fashion. Uh, the eyewitnesses were very, very important, but as it is with most, they're, they can be impeached or they can be cross-examined to show that, you know, maybe they're not sure about what they're saying. And defense did a very good job of that. Uh, but the one thing that I was about to mention, I'm glad you mentioned it first, is the handbrake being fully extended. Now, they had an argument for that, too. Uh, number one, because of the acceleration deceleration forces, uh, the handbrake miraculously came up on it which didn't make a lot of sense, but that was, that was something they advanced what the heck? They'll you know, yeah. throw it out in case somebody rides <laughs> it. But also that maybe the emergency personnel thought that the vehicle might still be in a position where it's unstable or might roll before we get in there and try to extricate this woman. Let's pull the handbrake, which is a more reasonable argument. Right. And I think many people may have thought that. Although, you know, the eyewitnesses we had seemed to... Uh, help us tremendously, uh, at least, you know, why would a woman be going against traffic at, ha- at those high rates of speed, weaving through traffic if right. she's passed out, you know, because she's having some kind of a, you know, uh, an, an event as a result of her diabetes. And then, in the, at the last moment, she saw an SUV heading towards her, a woman driver, uh, Camille Brandt. Camille had five of her children to come. So that head on would have meant a lot more than just Noriko Uno dying. It could have meant a lot of those kids, at least the mom, they have also passed. So she was really um, an altruist. Uh, yeah. She did the right thing. It took her life, unfortunately. She steered away. Uh, just as an aside, as, as these things happen, Camille Brandt. We later found out was married to Brian Brandt, who happens to be a very good PI lawyer here in town, uh, mainly in the Upland area. Uh, And it was like, wow, you know, she saved your wife and your kid's life by the last moment steering away and
1: running into the, you know, tree. Oh, my goodness.
2: Wow. I think it's also important. This is something that you mentioned earlier, but... um especially in talking about the defenses of the case in blaming noriko's medical condition or something else that she did that she did wrong one of the things that you touched on was having both defendants in the case and and a lot of times when we're talking about trials we're talking about strategic decisions of letting people out or you know the empty chair or whatever and it really seemed based on the transcripts that we had from this case You know, sometimes you'll get it, you'll get in a situation in trial where the defendants will eventually turn on each other, at least a little bit, but it really didn't seem to happen that much in this case. They just seemed 100% committed to blaming Noriko.
0: Exactly. Which was beautiful. You know, in a way we expected them to get smart and point the finger, but they sort of had this, uh, you know, honor amongst thieves where it's like, okay, we don't throw you under the bus, You don't throw us under the bus, you help us when you can, and we help you when we can. So Toyota helped them when it came to damages, when they could, and uh, they helped Toyota uh, when they could talk about diabetes and her being in a shock and, and not being in control. So, uh, but in the end, um, the jury saw right through that. And uh, one side or the other side were gonna get slammed. Uh, we were hoping both would get slammed, Right. But uh, we're happy that the jury least uh And 10 million bucks, you know, when you consider the case just before us, the Sailor case, where we had four people that died, uh, that's the CHP officer. Right. happens yeah. just the same time as ours, same day as ours, mm-hmm. where the guy uh, is on the freeway and he's praying that right. somebody could stop this car. People in the car are praying the crime. Car's going over 100 miles an hour, finally leaves the freeway crashes and it burns and that case got settled for two million five hundred thousand per wrongful death for a total of ten. So we had one 66 year old woman that had three to five year lifespan remaining and we got 10 million, we did okay. Yeah, absolutely
2: adult adult son at that point. I mean, I mean that's a terrific verdict.
1: Yeah. Well in that that other case, they also, if I remember right, they didn't they have cell phone um where they, he was basically talking on the cell phone with how can I stop this car?
0: Absolutely, or 911. They're, they're, they're asking for, you know, direction. This is a CHP officer that had tremendous experience in how to handle a vehicle, how to bring the vehicle to a stop. And, you know, but because of the pedal being trapped by the floor cover, the floor mat, uh, you know, who'd have thought that? And he's thinking, looking around, hitting the brake. The brakes were red hot it actually caught on fire because the brakes were uh, red hot and uh, just super, super unfortunate. Uh, uh, But hopefully our case was at least able to bring out a lot of their defenses and how to try to defeat them. And I think we were fairly successful in dealing with most, uh, but we did have the backstory. We did have Bello that we could point the finger at. And Bello, you know, had her own story where she said she came, she stopped, she looked. She went, and you know, she came out, of supposedly our lady came out of nowhere, and uh, we should have seen her, you know, proceeding, uh, but that did not resonate with the jury. I don't think.
1: Okay, that that was a little confusing. I I thought that she was claiming that somebody else had hit her or something, and maybe knocked her into your client, but it but you're saying she was talking about your client.
0: Yeah, there wasn't any other car involved, and okay. uh, what's was unusual is that how does our car? And maybe we get a chance to show you our 3D model because this is a uh, four-lane highway basically with a huge center median, about 40, 50 feet wide center median. How does our lady going towards the freeway, basically heading southbound, end up doing a complete 360 because of the, you know, sort of like a pit maneuver that police officers perform on cars that they spin out. So our vehicle spun out and then her foot gets stuck where she's accelerating but has enough control to make a sharp right and go against traffic and it's you know it's a highway people are going 40 50 miles an hour heading straight into her and she's avoiding them uh, until the end until the right. end but that was rather peculiar Like we were thinking that maybe she went down a little further then went across And this was also a center median that they use equestrian events, whether it were horses that would go up and down this a while back. And so it was really wide and it's dirt, and you couldn't really see markings that would prove that we didn't go through the center median. We were able to determine that no, she didn't, and she actually stayed on the road and on asphalt, but made that hard right to go around. So as we, you know, when you have questions to ask us about this, we can grab the camera and show you this entire model. And then uh, we've got the break override model. And then we have this closing sort of model that we put on a uh, on a shadow box. Uh, and, and it has three arrows in it. I'll tell you all about that later because i was a part of the team yeah. of the case the three arrows
2: oh yeah i, 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 I can't wait to talk about that
1: yeah well I, I wanted to go ahead and talk about it because so we, you know we're a podcast and uh, so th- w- i'm going to do my best to describe everybody what we're seeing but you've been kind enough uh to pull out in your conference room several of the models you use for the trial and what's sitting right in front of you looks like a 3d model of the scene where the uh collision happened and it's a it's essentially a scale model of uh, of Euclid Avenue and and Twenty Third. And so when you're describing that median, that's a that's a wide dirt median. I mean, I can see it right there. Um, yeah,
2: and we're not talking compute. Just so it's crystal clear, we're not talking a computer computerized three D three D model. This is a uh, physical. Like reminds me of like a like a little train set. Exactly, type thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, that, uh, that's awesome.
0: Yeah. So this. Here, uh, you know, we have the location where a vehicle ended up hitting that tree is down at 21st. So we have Deborah's Court, we have 22nd Street, we have 23rd. So we have all the cross, the intersections called out. Um, And you see the cars that we put in here. And then we put flags where the eyewitnesses were when they first saw the vehicle, passing by her. So they're right. going northbound. She's supposed to be going southbound in these lanes. Instead, she's going southbound in those lanes that are the northbound lanes. And so we have the uh, names of each one of those witnesses that they saw. And the one witness that you uh, referenced, Michelle Peoples, is the one that said she saw the brake lights uh, going on and off a couple of times as the vehicle passed her and she looked back. And that you know helped us uh, with our argument. Tremendously, and there were other witnesses that talked about seeing the Camry accelerating and hearing her. And they some estimated the speed to be up to 100 miles an hour, just full throttle, floor metal, you know, pedal to the metal, kind of. And here's this woman just completely in shock. I mean, not because she passed out, because she's terrified, knowing I can't stop this rocket, and it's not going to end well.
1: Yeah, I love uh, great demonstratives. And, um, you know, because not only does it really bring it home for the jury so that they can see, you know, exactly what you're talking about when you're making a point, but it it also, you know, it, it's great for cross-examination. It's great for examination with your own witnesses <coughs> Um you know, and so uh, you guys obviously put a ton of, ton of work into it, and I can see a number of the other models that you have in there. A model like you're talking about there, um, is that something that you put together yourself, or you have a company that helps you with, or? Let's just say
0: we do what we can to uh, be as involved as we can, but, no, we do have a company that we work with regularly in making these uh, for us. I'm gonna, I haven't used this before, but we'll see how this comes out Uh this level. You know, a blog that we used. So you were referencing the, the brake handle being right. pulled. That's that's that. So uh, for your audience, they could see that. So the argument we had was that she must have pulled that, trying to stop the vehicle. Yeah. Uh, and the defendants basically said, no, 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 it was done by emergency personnel or it was because of inertia. And they, you know, took it on, you know, head on. And these are the witnesses at different points that saw you know, uh, Our Lady heading towards her. So what do you think, Armin? grab the camera and take it over there to where the vehicle does the view or... Uh, I think it's... Uh, we're on a pod.
1: The... Um, it's, up, it's up to you guys. If uh, I can move the camera over there, we can see it now. <laughs> Yeah, anything that you all want to show would be fine. I was going to, you know, I forgot to mention when you, uh, Garo, when you were mentioning about the emergency handbrake being pulled and the defense was arguing that that happened during the collision, which would have had to have been mainly a frontal collision. I mean, I've, uh, I'm have i no expert, but I've done a lot of uh, products cases. I I don't think I've ever seen a frontal collision cause the uh, emergency handbrake to pull on its own.
2: Yeah, me neither. <laughs>
0: But <laughs> when you've got nothing else to argue, right, right. Uh, throw it
1: out there, it's just in case. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of their other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations and I'm talking of course about legal technology services and you can find them at ltsatlanta.com
2: Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, stay in the life videos, stuff for your website.
1: Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology-based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with the demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at LTSAtlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com.
2: And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh
1: yeah, I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So yeah, so what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials Podcast, when you call in the legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials Podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job and again, that is LTSAtlanta.com. Legal Technology Services. Uh, give them a try.
2: So for this big scale model that you all have that I I said reminded me of like a train set type thing. Did you have that? Was that basically in the courtroom the whole time or were you bringing that in and out?
0: What you're seeing right now, which is probably 14 feet long in the courtroom was about 18 feet long. So there was another piece that we chopped up because we ended up we we ended up putting this on a wall in one of our offices. Oh, cool! Uh, we yeah, throw it away. So we had to make it a bit smaller to fit the wall. Uh, but it was in the courtroom all the time, but often covered. So okay. when the defense yeah. took over, or when they knew we weren't using it with the witness, they were right on top of it to say, "Cover that thing! <laughs> Cover that yeah. thing!" But yeah, you know,
2: yeah I mean, it's always, if, yeah. You're it always didn't. feels like a sort of strategic advantage when you've got the, you've got the best demonstrative that everybody wants to use to explain something.
1: Well, I'll yeah. also say it's smart because uh, I, I tried a case against Ford uh, on a, the, it was a stuck throttle rollover case. And they had a model, a, a 3D model like that, that they had with, with uh, 23, you know, explorers. They were all in the different positions that it rolled over. And so when I got up to do cross-examination, I started using their demonstrative and was showing how the expert was wrong and they hated that. I mean, so I, I think, you know, <laughs> covering, covering it up, true. I mean, making sure you're the only one using it is, a uh, is uh, you know, definitely a good idea.
0: Yeah, for them. And they, they did what they could using our model. And, right. you know, you, you can't say this is ours, you can't touch it, they, they, they marked as evidence and uh, and they, they did.
1: Right, so, right. Yeah.
2: It's really awesome. Okay,
1: so, some of the other models that you have in there, uh, you were saying you you have a uh, a boss, a, a break brake override safety system. Say again the break override safety system. I was I was just asking about some of the other models that you had uh, that that you have there with you, um, that you that you might be able to show us.
0: Yes, what we have is a uh, um, we have a throttle body. Uh, and uh, we have basically a carburetor and uh, a EDU, electronic data recorder, um, electronic data unit or ECU, we have a brake and accelerator pedal. Uh, So our whole argument was that somebody somehow uh, accidentally hits the accelerator and the throttle butterfly opens up, Mm -hmm. the slight, Sort of goes on, right? And then if you hit the brake, the brake, the light goes on, overrides the accelerator, and shuts down the throttle body. So
1: now right. the
0: butterfly is closed. There's no more fuel going into the uh, cylinders. The car is not going to go anywhere. So...
1: And, and this was a uh, this was a 2006 uh, Toyota Camry and, and i th- i think i saw that you had evidence that at least on eight other models i think over in asia and in europe uh, they had that system going back to 2001
0: that's true we uh, showed that in other countries they, they had the boss system they just had not uh, put it in all their cars and could have been put in all their cars that are very low uh, cost to them and they just had gotten around to us and she happened to be a victim of their delay.
1: And what was their explanation for why they didn't put it in their um, uh, uh, vehicles in in the U.S.? And and one thing I should say is, and I don't know, I I didn't see whether or not they contested this, but um, the... All they had to do to put the brake override system in was essentially make a a programming change that took up uh, very little space, from what I understood. So it wasn't it wasn't like they had to add a new part or to um, or, or or to do anything like that. They basically just had to change the the programming in their uh, uh, electronic uh, control unit.
0: It would take 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was it was as easy as. Taking the car to the dealership, hooking up one wire to it, to one computer. And the port for the wire that you hooked up is not like you got to take parts off the car. It is accessible underneath the Mm -hmm. dashboard because that's what they plug into when you do your smog check. It's called an OBD2 port. So they just hook up a cable to that. And within 15 minutes, they could have put brake override in this car. And the reason they didn't is there was a memo that went into evidence that uh, Garo had used while cross-examining Jim Lentz, the CEO. And of course, it was a uh, financial-based decision that if we start doing this to all our cars, then everybody's going to want it and it's going to be a big tax on the resources. And that's exactly what the memo said. And that's what we ended up putting to the jury on Peter death zone.
1: So what would, I mean, but it, if, if all it was is essentially a, a programming change, I mean, it doesn't seem like it would cost very much. So what, how, how is that a... How is that a big cost to the company? Did they did they show well, evidence of how much it would cost them?
0: Well, it was, it's the admission of defect, right? Anytime right. you make changes to a vehicle and now you're admitting that there was a defect. So now people that hadn't even thought about this issue now are going to say, hey, maybe my crash was a result of this too. And it'll just open the gates, as Poeta was afraid of, to many other cases that people probably never realized there was something there.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay.
2: Yeah, yeah, that was- Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead.
0: The the memo says, and this was an evidence, uh, that Toyota Motor has conveyed that their concern of focusing on it, it meaning brake override, as a safety feature could have a big impact, potentially creating pressure for Toyota to retrofit all of their vehicles. This would have a negative impact on our resources at Toyota Motor Corporation.
1: Oh, man.
2: Yeah. So did you get that in the first round of discovery? I'm just curious, or how hard did you have to fight to get that document?
0: <laughs> they, they, they produced hundreds and thousands of pages of documents. And uh, we, with other people that were on the uh, committee, uh, Gar was on the steering committee and the uh, executive committee for the JCCP in California, all you know got together and reviewed a section of the document and others reviewed certain sections. And so this document, I forget how it was found, but it ended up being one of the things that they fought hard on to keep out. And with uh, Lentz on the stand, he had to roll over because he was on the email. And so that was the reason why they also fought so hard uh, not to have Lentz show up. Since it was state court, you know, we faced an issue of how do you compel him? Well, luckily at the time, Toyota was in Florence. So, right. we, so we had subpoena power over him. So we issued a 1987 to have him show up. They refused. They even took a writ on it. The writ was denied, and then he had to show up, and he showed up the following Monday with two bodyguards in court.
1: (laughs) Wow. Were his bodyguards in the courtroom? Yes,
0: (laughs) they were in the courtroom, uh, they, well, while Garo cross-examined him, they were watching to make sure that uh, he doesn't get too close.
1: <laughs> right, right, exactly.
0: <laughs> wow. I mean, Garo,
1: Garo, that's got to make you kind of want to get too close just to see if you can get the bodyguards to rush you. No, <laughs> trust me,
0: I, I I was within inches of him because I <laughs> right. brought the uh, that three-dimensional model showing the throttle body and the brake override system in operation. Uh, and I had him tell me exactly what's happening. And look at the throttle body. Tell me if it's open or if it's closed. So you know, he, you know, he was very well prepared. So he knew not to argue with me. He knew not to say no. I won't do that. You know, he'd do whatever I asked him to do as long as you know I wasn't asking him anything unreasonable. Uh, and so we had great exchange. And I think uh, you know, he gave me enough concessions that I thought we made our point. I mean, the judge also made it clear to us that look, I'm letting you cross examine him but I'm going to limit, you know, where you're going with this. You're going to be real focused on just this topic. And so we, one thing we didn't want to do was run a file of the judge.
1: Right. Yeah. And
0: so we, uh, you know, and everything went well. The defense attorneys, uh, mainly, I mean, the two that were most involved, whether it be Mark Berry or, or Vince Galvin, are just, you know, great guys. And, um, you know, you can trust them. When they say they're going to do something, they do it. They don't play games. Uh, I mean, they, they work hard to beat you, but at least, uh, you know, they're not the kind that will, um, you know, say one thing and do another.
1: Right.
2: Yeah. Right. We should touch on, because I think we've talked on this podcast on on many episodes about the, the hurdles and products cases that are kind of unique to products cases. But one of them that, Steve, I'm not sure if we've spent that much time talking about before is, is that how hard it is to get um, somebody... The fight that you usually have to fight to get somebody that's pretty high up at the yeah. manufacturer for, to either depose them or especially to have them testify at trial. And usually it's such important testimony, but a lot of times I think people who don't do products or people who aren't lawyers would be surprised that, that sometimes that's a really hard fight that you lose to be able to depose those people.
0: Right. Yeah. We, we have in California, the uh, apex deposition yeah. where, you know, they claim he's got no knowledge whatsoever about this topic. And so you're just harassing him. Uh, they they tried to stretch that to say it applies at trial. And that's the issue that uh, the judge we had, Judge Edmond uh, said, no, that only applies to depositions, not trial, because the CCP, Code of Civil Procedure, says you can subpoena a managing agent, officer, or director of a corporation from trial. Had they intended to limit it to people that only know information, they would have put that in the code. So she said, that's the way I'm reading it. They took a writ on it. We also had the added benefit of, because we were a part of the MDL, the multi-district litigation, and Jim Lentz had been deposed in the MDL. So we were able to point to the relevant information he would have had for our case in advance, so it didn't look like we were just fishing when we were going to trial, and we actually had some information that we wanted to use, uh, because I was at Jim Lentz's deposition when he was deposed in the multi-district litigation case.
1: Right. And if his oh, name yeah. is on some of the memos, I mean, he, you know, yeah. he's a relevant witness.
0: Yes. Yes. And and this, this, this memo, you know, was in our exhibit binder and a bunch of you know other documents and it was not used until he took the stand.
1: So, I, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you all, uh, I mean, you know, yeah. th- this whole podcast gets sure. into the, the, the yeah. dirt of a uh, case. This so. is a little bit of a nerdy question, but, um, I saw that um, here at Georgia, we have the risk utility test as far as a defective product uh, the, or a risk benefit, you know, basically. And I saw, at least before you started opening argument, there was some uh, there was some argument about whether or not you were going to be using the consumer expectation test or using the risk benefit analysis. And I didn't really see how that played out. What, what, so maybe explain to our listeners... Uh, the difference between the two and then, uh, and, and which one you ended up using or, or both?
0: Well, we, we tried to use both. Uh, What went to the jury was a risk benefit test or risk utility, like you call it in Georgia. Um, You know, the, the risk benefit test, they always like more. They never liked the consumer expectation test. They meaning the defense in these product cases, because they figure, Hey, if an ordinary consumer can form a Opinion about this product and then find it defective, who even needs an expert on that issue, right? And they always want to make it technical, difficult, and hyper uh, technical to issues they hope they can get the jury lost in. We asked for the consumer expectation test. At the end, uh, Judge Edmund ruled against us and said, I'm not going to give it in this case uh, because of the, uh, she felt, the complexities involved in how brake override works. Because what Toyota did, um, which uh, was true about this system. And I think that's the reason, part of the reason why Toyota got where they got to in this case, is there was a canceling feature on this system. And it's not just every time you step on the brake pedal that the gas pedal's pressed, that it'll cancel the gas. That actually, if you release the brake some, or if the gas pedal gets uh, pivoted up and down during the process, or the brake pedal is not pushed the way it's supposed to be, the brake override won't kick in. Hmm. So, So what they did is they went super technical on that and tried to show how even if they had it in this case, because her foot was stuck, it would have never activated because of this canceling feature that would occur. Because every time you step on the brake, her heel would step more on the gas pedal, which would then cause the brake override to cancel. Because the way they had designed it was, if you have your foot on the brake and you have your foot on the gas, and now you step on the gas more, that means you want to go faster, so the brain would say, "Hey, this is somebody who drives with two feet, and thus I should be going right. faster because that's the intention here." So that was the real hitch on that on that topic, uh, you know, when it came to that. So what the judge said is because there's so many, uh, I mean, obviously we don't agree with it, but because there were so many uh, technicalities involved with the system, the consumer expectation should not go to the
1: jury. So, and what would you have to do to to get the consumer expectation test? I saw that in the opening, you you mentioned some of their advertising. Uh, you know, talking about how they they talked about how safe their vehicle was, how it was safe and sexy and 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 things like that. Uh, what what would you have to show as far as the uh, to get the consumer expectation test?
0: I imagine what Armin is saying is uh, that uh, we'd have to show that it's simple enough,
1: right. okay that
0: consumers uh, have a certain expectation of how this particular product is supposed to perform. And they try to take it out of that realm by saying, "Oh, no, no, this isn't that easy." It's not, you know, if your foot's on the brake, your foot's on the gas, the brake overrides the gas, or your foot's on the gas, you hit the brake. No, they said it's, it's very complicated and consumers would not know this, they couldn't expect this because if her foot is on the gas, but also trapped underneath the brake, now she's with one foot hitting the top of the brake, which is also causing the gas to accelerate a bit and then back off, well, the brake override system won't work because right. it's giving you signals that the person knows what he's doing. He's just like, when you get stuck in the snow or you get stuck in sand, you, the older cars, you could do that. You could accelerate and hit the brake at the same time. So you're doing it on purpose. So yeah. you wanted to allow for that feature to exist. Although as far as I'm concerned, that should have never been allowed to begin with, you know. Right, so right. You and I guess, that.
1: The, I mean, cause it, it does seem like that if you hit the brakes, you should expect your car to stop. So, you know, That would be unless one of those guys.
0: Right. Right. Both. There are people that Uh,
2: there are people who do that. It is crazy.
0: Being (laughs) a driving instructor, I would tell my students, never do that. That Clutch and clutch only.
1: (laughs) I remember my uh, my grandmother was a two foot driver. She would, uh, you know, put her right foot on the accelerator, left foot on the brake. And that's how she drove. Well,
2: yeah. And it happens like you get on the highway and you're like, how has this person had their brakes on? For this long, but they're not slowing down. And it's because they're like gently resting their foot on the brake while their other foot's on the gas. It's crazy.
0: Just like a bicycle, you got to use both feet. It's, yeah. it's almost as annoying as a person yeah. who leaves their turn signal on. Right, well, right, exactly. <laughs> I know.
2: There should be some, like, universal signal to tell somebody that their turn signal still on.
0: You know, I'm coming up to the camera and showing you stuff. Is your audience seeing any? This is all audio. Well, nobody
1: I mean, we're, we're going to have to do our best to explain it. We do use some things where we uh, we will we'll show certain things like little videos, but but mainly this is a is a listening podcast so we got to do our best to uh to, but to explain we could, we do,
2: yeah we record the video so we can potentially like use some clips especially when you're showing us stuff and post that so
1: yeah so uh I, I wanted to talk so not the defense by toyota not only you know the fact that they didn't think they needed to put this system on there but they were basically claiming that this was a case of, of pedal misapplication that, that, i mean two things that i saw one is that she couldn't have gotten her foot trapped under there um, because there was too much room. That was basically what they're saying. And then two, that that she thought, I mean, I guess they, they were arguing that she thought she was hitting the brake, but was actually hitting the accelerator. Was that there? That, that's
0: that's correct. That's that's that was part of the defense. Yeah.
1: And, and how how did you all face that defense? I mean, I, you know, obviously one part of it is is that that seems like that would be hard to do for 13 seconds going against traffic in the wrong way and steering your vehicle. But I mean, how, how did you all face that or argue against that defense?
0: Well, it, it started with you know, it's we we tried the as most of these product cases are tried, especially in a solo vehicle issue, is it's either the car or the driver and there's nothing in between, right? So we we tried to rule out the driver and we did rule out Mrs. Uno because the jury at the end said she was not negligent. So the jury at the end found that she did not cause her death. She did nothing wrong, uh, but blamed Bello for it all because they believed that her foot got stuck as a result of the collision. But to rule out Mrs. Bello, I'm sorry, Mrs. Uno, uh, it involved a lot of things. It involved her full medical history. And we had her primary care physician come testify to say what her history was. We had a uh, person who can talk about her blood sugar levels because she meticulously kept her logs. She kept her blood sugar level logs. So we had her log for the two months before that showed that the morning of the crash, she was at an 83, which was a normal blood sugar level for her. Uh, we used uh, her drive from her house. So where the crash occurred, sure, it was a straight area of roadway, but she had navigated some 13 different twists and turns to get to where the crash occurred. So if she made it that far without hitting curbs, without hitting uh, bushes or pedestrians or trees, then obviously there's nothing going on with her is what the argument was. Uh, and of course, as Garo mentioned, you know, the best evidence is that pulled emergency brake, that right. if, you're, if you're if you're in some altered mental state or some, you're having some Issue with your ability to to, your cognition, or you're having some issue with feel, you'd never pull that thing because that would be the last thing that would occur to you in that situation, right? Yeah, and we'd call it the emergency brake. That always Mm -hmm. correct us and say, There's only a parking (laughs) brake, right?
1: right, Yeah,
0: (laughs) (laughs) they they actually tried to to censor that and say, Your Honor, uh, you know, Mr. Martin Rosen calls keep calling the emergency brake. That's argumentative. This is the parking break. You know, this is, mm-hmm. this is nice. The guard said, I've always called
1: it the emergency break. So right. You know. yeah. <laughs> Never yeah. mind. that, you know, uh, 99% of the population calls it the emergency break too. Right. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the great trials podcast, unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online.
2: Yeah. I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with.
1: Yeah, and they make sure that you can be found too because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm.
2: They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website, and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do.
1: Exactly, uh, and, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day, and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which. Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that.
2: Yes, they're awesome.
1: So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644, or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com
2: and tell them we sent you. I, w-
1: I want to talk a little bit um, about the damages and how you presented damages uh, in the case. And, and Garo, you had um, you talked about the shadow box you had there. Tell us a little bit about um, uh, Noriko and, and, and how you were able to go about presenting uh, the damages in this case.
0: Well, uh, what I was able to show uh, really through dad, uh, dad, although he spoke very, very broken English, his vocabulary, um, although he'd been in the country for you know several decades, uh, he came to America as an adult. So it's much more difficult if you come to America as an adult and have a lot of people around you that speak Japanese so you're not practicing as much as you should. I mean, I came to this country as a 11 year old and I picked it up. I still have an accent, but not as bad as his. And what, when he spoke, it may have been difficult to understand but he used really very uh, descriptive words He came up with not not came up, but he told the story of the samurai, and that what samurai say. Samurai say that uh, three arrows very strong. Three arrows are very strong. If you have one arrow, you break it easy. If you have two arrows, not so easy. If you have three arrows, impossible to break. Well, we were the three arrows: mother, father, son. They took away. One of the arrows, now we break. Maybe not as easy, but we break. And so that was part of the team, and that's why I used those three arrows. Uh, the mom was just, you know, your typical mom that doted over her family. She uh, took care of the books at the business. She would help buy whatever products they needed for the business. She um, was just a wonderful woman. Everybody that knew her that talked about her talked about what a wonderful woman she was, she was so special to her husband. Uh, I mean, they uh, met each other at a young age and that's all they knew was each other. And now they had the son, Jeffrey, that they were so proud of. Um, And so it wasn't very hard to show a few of those pictures and especially when you talk about the horror that she was experiencing for those last, whatever it was, 10, 12, 13, 14, 15 seconds, a lifetime when you know you, you know, God forbid that we're ever on a plane and we know the cra- plane's going down and there's nothing you can do. This was just like that. Because there wasn't, it wasn't like there was a runway that she was going to be able to slow down the vehicle. She had to hit something somewhere, somehow, and to slow down or come to a abrupt stop. And this kind of a stop, there was no, you know, slowing down. And so she hit that thing going 50, 60 miles an hour. And, you know, it was just horrible. Oh, what happened? Yeah, I can't what imagine. Was-
2: I mean, it's scary when you've got any kind of, at least for me, it's scary when I've got any kind of unexpected car problem, even if it's not one where I feel like I'm, you know, hurtling in something that I can't stop just sort of anything that happens while you're driving and you, you know, you suddenly get a flat, flat tire, or your engine starts making a crazy noise and you're alone, like any of that is scary. But to be in that situation, um, i i can't even imagine you know and, and clearly you know she's she's appreciating how perilous and the danger that's really there because she's navigating her car around people and obviously what she does at the end to sort of save other people's lives
0: i i saw you know during the closing argument i i you know obviously watched gar do it I, I was at council's table with him and and there was something very unexpected and it was very powerful as he put a picture of a blow up picture of Noriko Uno in the witness stand on the witness chair. And he told the story from her perspective of what she would tell you if she was here today. And so you look at her picture in the witness stand and you have the handbrake, the emergency brake pulled up and you have the photos and uh, you know, he wove it in with Peter would go almost daily to the tree where his wife died and leave flowers and white of foam. And he would sit there and people would come to him and talk to him about what happened and, and it was his way of trying to, as best as he could, uh, grieve, you know, and do whatever he can to try to get through the days. But he, he was, he, 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 took a, even when he testified, he took a four by six picture framed of his wife up to the witness stand and put it in front of him as he testified. The other thing, which, you know, obviously was a, uh, you know, was something that was powerful is to say, look, she wanted everybody to know that she was trying to stop this car and the way she's sending you that message is through that handbrake. So if she were here to speak to you she would say look at the handbrake. Right. I didn't pull that for nothing. I pulled it for a reason to stop it but this damn car wouldn't stop if it had the brake
1: override system,
0: the safety system, I'd be here to talk to you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful.
2: I um I I just want to make sure that I mention this because um especially preparing for the different episodes that that Steve and I do, we read a lot of transcripts, trial transcripts. Um, but especially now that I get to see through the video, talking to you all, the, the demonstratives that you have, it's really the, I thought, I mean, all of the argument, but the opening statement in particular, I thought was really great and engaging even without, um, I was kind of impressed by how much you were able to explain and cover, um, in a case like that's so you know every product's case is technical, but I think this one is even is is on the more technical side, and that was without being able to see your um, demonstratives, which are great. So just even reading it, I thought it was very clear and well done. So I just want to give you give you props for that.
0: Thanks. I'm, I'm serious. I say Armin did all the work. I mean, I, I was basically the actor that, that followed his. Uh, okay, then they're, they're just
2: props for Armin. Yeah.
0: Don't believe him. Don't, don't believe him. Don't believe, yeah. him. Don't, don't <laughs> believe any of that. And, and the acting is the hardest part anyway. If they don't
1: like the actor, the movie sucks. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> <That's> right. Right. <laughs> right. Good point. Good point. <laughs> I mean, it is one of the you know the, the things that we talk about, especially doing products laws. Is you know as plaintiffs lawyers, it's our job to. Uh, simplify it as much as we can to make sure that the jury understands, you know, how these uh, systems that can be complex work. And, um, and, and Yvonne's exactly right. I mean, you really did a great job explaining, you know, how it works, you know, and, and how it could have been designed differently and, and how they knew about it. Um, it, it was very compelling. Um, one thing I didn't ask about is, it, you know, so in a case like this, were you able to get into evidence a lot of other incidents like for instance, the, the, the other case that we talked about um, we, earlier. We,
0: we tried, we, we tried, we tried to, we had all the evidence for it, but um, we, we, because uh, the canceling on the brake override became a big part, and this was something that was never mentioned during deposition by Toyota, but they sort of stumbled on this as trial went on. They got away from blaming Noriko because they saw that was becoming a losing battle they moved over to the canceling feature and they and they sh- and they they were able to sh- convince Judge Edmund about how this canceling feature works. And so that the canceling feature they were to show, you had to show me in all those other cases, how the brake pedal was pressed and how the gas pedal was pressed in those OSIs before you try to bring them in here. Yeah, as, as you know, OSIs uh, can be very tricky. Right. Uh, sometimes, you you know, uh, a good buddy of mine uh, tried eight cases with Charlie O'Reilly, was regarded to be the best trial lawyer uh, of all time in the state of California. That anybody knew him, anybody knew his name, he would say, uh, and we tried a few cases and we got a few OSIs in. He goes, Carl, I was never able to get an OSI in. To get one in would be a big deal. <laughs> we had a trial where we had 20 OSIs that came in. and And, you know, it took two days. For the witnesses to come in and talk about how they investigated that case, about how they knew exactly what they're speaking about. They're not just looking at a police report and giving you hearsay evidence. So OSIs can be powerful, but they're right. also difficult to get in. When they get in, you know, does give the trial effect enough information to understand. This is just a one-off. This has happened before.
1: Yeah. Well, that's why they're so important and, and why they're fought about so much in, in product cases. Uh, I mean, you know, we fight very hard to get them in and the defense fights very hard to keep them out. Um, so um, we, we, we just as an add to we had
0: three days of a 402 hearing just to actually even have our break override system get into the, the evidence because they challenged the qualifications and methodology used by the expert uh, who did the uh, work for us on the break override issue. And it was a three-day 402 hearing. At the end, you know, the, the judge, like Garo said, she's a great judge. She's a justice now of the court of appeal. Uh, she she let the evidence in, but it was it was very hard fought. It was a three-day and a 402 is, you know, the hearing outside the jury, right. in terms of the person has the correct methodology to to get into the opinions that they that they actually want to
1: provide to the jury. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Essentially, a, a, a Daubert hearing, uh, you know, on the on right. the methodology. Absolutely. Right. Yeah um well uh I'll, i i don't want to leave the issue of uh, uh the verdict against miss Bella. so is so if i'm understanding right that was essentially a uh, a bad faith uh verdict or what we you know refer to as bad faith or failure to settle uh case when they had the opportunity did you pursue it uh, uh, uh you know in in you know how we would normally do that is you get a verdict against her and then Somebody represents her against her own insurance company. Did it, did it go through that uh, process?
0: Yeah, what happened was uh, they basically posted the bond. Uh, they realized they were open on that. They weren't going to let her have her own bad faith case against them. So they posted the bond. So it was just a matter of them winning the appeal. Okay. And uh, just days before, I actually we were down at the courthouse to argue the, the appellate level uh, when we reached the resolution. And the family was uh, very satisfied. Mm.
1: Oh, great! Great. great. That's uh, that's fantastic. Well, uh, uh, we had
0: others where we had to go through uh, having separate counsel represent the underlying defendant uh, for their own direct action uh, for their emotional distress and their penal damages, and then we have you know the excessive uh, verdict case, uh, excess excessive policy case, and we've had you know obviously other cases uh, where we uh, worked out with other defendants in Mary Carter agreement where we'll go to trial and the other defendant is helping us. Jury's told they're going to help, but they've got an agreement. And some of that agreement is disclosed to the jury. And those are rarely go through a full trial. We had at least one of those recently that worked out tremendously. Uh, right. There was a small policy they didn't pay. They ended up guaranteeing 15 times that policy uh, in a very corridor where, again, we had a backstop. No matter what happened, we're going to do that.
1: Well, we did. And one thing I th- I thought I saw is Miss Bellow, she didn't show up at the trial, is that right? But she did. She oh, she did, did. Okay. she did. Okay. She showed
0: up. She showed up the first day uh for jury selection uh and you know she had a she's I think she had seven daughters and her seventh daughter unfortunately had some mental illness and she had brought her with her too, but she had clearly brought her for other reasons. You know, for sympathy, not for because she had no her daughter had no information whatsoever about the case. She was a passenger in the vehicle, but she remembered nothing because she was, you know, obviously had a difficult time remembering the calling because, because of her mental illness. Um, so that's the only time she showed up first, and then she showed up to testify, and that was it. Yeah. Okay. So they played the sympathy card the best they could, an older woman. It made it look like she not well off, that she couldn't afford to even defend this case. Uh, but the year she was defending it, the jury saw it through them.
1: Right, right. Um, and then is, as far as your clients, did you have them there at trial the whole time? Or how how did you do yeah, that? They,
0: they were very, very involved. Uh, they want to know what's going on. And, you know, depending on the kind of injury the client suffered, you know, we will let some clients come and others not. Uh, just... You know we we do focus group these cases too. Mm-hmm. we do it formally, we do it informally, you know uh, we thought of every angle there could be, and then we think of more angles uh right. and so we stay up doing that uh before trial and during trial, so that doesn't stop they 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 wrote a uh they lived in upland, which is about sixty miles from the courthouse, maybe fifty miles and traffic coming towards the courthouse which is uh, west in the mornings is very very heavy from there it would take for 50 miles it'd take you probably two hours two and a half hours so they'd get up super early they'd ride the train in r- ride an early train in wait trial would happen ride the train back at about 4 four thirty. 30 and since they own the sushi restaurant they'd have to go to the restaurant to run the evening hours too So not only were they part of the trial, there's small business owners that are still running their business at the same time. And Jeff is an attorney. He was a practice, he was a licensed attorney, but because mom passed away, now he was having to help dad at the sushi restaurant. So he put his career on hold to help dad. And that's what kind of a family this was and how how close they were to each other that, you know, when it came to coming to court to see their mom and wife get justice, it was, you know, a walk in the park for them. they couldn't think of nothing else to do but do this.
1: Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, you know that, that it really does talk about how close they are as a family, but uh, in but how just uh, grueling that can be on them. Um, and, and from what I saw, it looked like this trial took ten weeks. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's a, about right. Almost three months. Yeah, that's a that's mm-hmm. a long trial. Um, how do you keep your energy up during uh, during that that period?
0: Well, my my uh, I had a case in Barstow that lasted six months. Oh against uh, against <laughs> Ford Motor Company in a uh, the first ever jury that found that the Ford Explorer was defective designed and that it had a propensity to roll over, that was a case called Gozukara that lasted six months and oh, that yeah. was you know 150 miles away from home. <laughs> so if I could do that, I could do this one. <laughs>
1: Right, yeah. right, yeah. This is a wonderful yeah. he, he, he,
0: he, he had a beach chair in the office in the courthouse in the office we were renting in the which he would recline and take a nap over lunch. So that was his way <laughs> to try to get. Your energy as he went into it. But I was, I was remembering telling him too, at the time, you know, with CVN recording it, my son was only one at the time and now he's eight. <laughs> and the only time my son would see me is by watching CBN. you know, right. oh my or, his mom would put it on for him to watch Otherwise I, right. You know, <laughs> oh my gosh,
2: <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> gosh. that's yeah. a six months is a lot of time to spend with Ford. Oh yeah. Um, oh,
0: tell yeah. me about it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, uh, it was, we had Ford lawyers from, uh, you know, from Chicago, Midwest, uh, lawyers here. Uh, yeah, they, they put up a fight.
1: Yeah, I, I, I did a five-week trial with Ford, and that was, uh, you know, I, I definitely was ready to be done with it after we were, we were done.
2: Six months, wow. And,
0: and, and when he says Barstow, just think about just a stopover on the way from one big city to another where there's like one motel, if you're lucky. And I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit to that, but it is a very small Town with nothing to do, so right. Uh, in the movie, too fast and furious, the guy actually says, I ain't going back to Barstow. <laughs> <laughs> Barstow was back to Barstow, yeah. <laughs> Although, I had another trial in Barstow that lasted four months. <laughs> oh, my goodness! School. So, I did go back, I didn't learn. From that trip, so, I so
2: you're, you're basically a local there, yeah. Basically. They all know you,
0: they had, a paper, they had a newspaper ad that said something about uh. You know, local lawyer knows about Barstow or something. They had a a neat column they wrote about it about Barstow. I had a I had a guy that uh, actually we used his car. We drove a thirty four DeSoto, and that vehicle had the space design uh, roll cage incorporated inside the vehicle. So you know, we we knew how to make roofs stronger all the way back in the thirties. Uh, And so he drove that out there and uh, we'd be driving around. We got pulled over by undercover police because the (laughs) lights on those things are so faded and you can hardly see it. They they thought we were robbing somebody and trying to hide and get away. And uh, we had to explain to them, uh, oh, this is really our car. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) We get around in this thing and it's all original, all original, 1934 DeSoto Airflow." We rust and all, you know, the, says the original not restored, like rusty, right. You yeah. know, it just, just <laughs> looks like you pulled it out of the ocean and
1: said this thing runs and I'll use it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, um, yeah. I, I remember seeing some of those old uh, videos of, of where they take a car and they roll it down a hill and show how the, you know, people get out, walk away from it and they, nothing happens to fair. it.
0: We, we use that in the trial. Yeah, We use yeah. that in a rollover case where the roof crushed to show, you know why it is that they could have easily designed these pillars to absorb this type of uh, force. Garl's friend that owns the studio actually is the one that brought that video out. Oh, and, really? Uh, yeah, and they got it admitted for the first time in a case against GM. Yes, GM, because the guy, our expert, was able to say, "I worked at GM. <laughs> when I worked at GM, in their library were these tapes, and I've seen this at GM. So we got that into evidence. Oh, that's Thanks.
1: awesome! That is
0: awesome.
1: Well, um, I, I want to give you all a chance. This has been just a great time talking about the uh, the Uno versus Toyota case, but um, is there anything else that you want to make sure that the listeners know about the trial that we haven't had a chance to talk about?
0: You know, I think we hit on all the major points that might be a sort of the important things that went on. Uh, in the end, it's all about, you know, loving your client, loving what you do, knowing you're doing the right thing, and, uh and you know just having a courtroom call the balls and strikes in a fair way and let a jury decide you know, we have a great yeah. system unfortunately because of the pandemic uh we haven't had a trial uh all year we're not going to have one probably for at least another six months or longer yeah. this has really put the damper on justice and what we'd love to do and try to get justice for our clients who are being deprived of it right now
1: yeah no you're absolutely right um you know so we're hopefully we can uh, start getting back in the courtroom soon. Um, well, I want to thank you guys uh, for coming on the show. We've been talking with uh, uh, Garo Mar- Martisonian Mar- Rossian. <laughs> no. I messed it up. I messed it up. I almost had it. Martirosian. <laughs> Mar- Martirosian. a Video of uh, Danny Glover trying to
0: pronounce my name when he <laughs> Johnny Conchran uh, <laughs> event. And and he says my name like six different times. In the end he it's just like did, Martyroskian <laughs> <laughs> Martrossian or Marturasian.
1: Uh, <laughs> well, uh, I'm Mar-ros-yan. sorry for butchering your name. And and Arm Armin Akarakian. I, I got that one right, right? Yeah. <laughs> um from the uh, the firm that is about to be known as uh Martirosian, and Akarakian <laughs>
0: <laughs> in Los <laughs> Angeles exactly you, you almost wonder what is that what, what's that thing mean, right like what's that long is that on purpose or is that you know done done to it's a joke you know yeah. are, you, are you are
2: you gonna stick with um, garolaw.com yeah it's so easy um, I, I, I think you should yeah
1: you know <laughs> yeah that's what, that's what I was about to say I mean to look to look up Garo and Armin go to garolaw.com so g-a-r-o law.com dot
0: so we, we want to thank you guys too steve and yvonne it's a great show we've heard a lot we've listened to you guys in the past and you know thanks so much for uh, having us here
1: well thank you guys for coming on this has been really a fascinating case and uh and uh, thank you for sharing with us
0: ladies and gentlemen of the jury have you reached a verdict
1: Thank you for listening to The Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with, or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's gonna be hopefully not that boring. Uh, We've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website.
2: Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com note if you have something mean to say we don't have email <laughs>
1: right exactly <laughs> we only need a uh, positive commentary yeah,
2: we're fragile yeah. um you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts apple podcast stitcher spotify google play or wherever again if you have something mean to say um